you know, the newborn screening research to me is very pragmatic. It's very goal oriented, and it clearly has the goal of improving the health and the lives of children and their family and the families. Um, and for this, um, newborns are some of our most vulnerable people in society. And as a mother myself, I really feel this. Um, I guess it's a maternal instinct really to be able to take care of them and to make sure that they are going to grow up to be healthy and happy and that their families will be able to in the same way uh, love and support them for for decades to come. Listen to Dr. Wendy Chung, who as a high school senior won the Super Bowl of Science, or it was called in those days, the Westinghouse Science Talent Search. Now, Dr. Chung is an American Board of Medical Genetics and Genomics Certified Clinical and Molecular Geneticist with over two decades of experience in human genetic research of both monogenic and complex traits. Dr. Chung directs her research program at the Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. Dr. Chung has extensive experience mapping and cloning genes in humans and describing the clinical characteristics and natural history of novel genetic conditions and characterizing the spectrum of disease, all the while developing tailored care and treatments for families and patients living with rare genetic diseases. Dr. Chung's team has led groundbreaking research describing the genetic basis of both rare and common genetic disease, as well as the development of precision therapies based on the genetic findings in individuals. Dr. Chung was part of a two-year pilot of newborn screening for Duchenne muscular dystrophy and now leads the Guardian study, which has the goal of genome sequencing in 100,000 newborns in New York City. Listen along with us as Dr. Chung shares the story of how she first got involved in newborn screening research and how the MBSTRN is a vital part of advancing newborn screening for the benefit of all children and their families. Be inspired with her story. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MDSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. 
To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Dr. Chung, you are a board-certified clinical and molecular geneticist with over 20 years of experience in human genetic research. How did you get involved with newborn screening research? Well, this started a long time ago. Um, if you can imagine, when I was in high school, there was a program that used to be called the Westinghouse Science Talent Search. And when I was a senior in high school, I had entered that. And as part of the final part of the selection, we took a trip to Washington, D.C., where we were judged and evaluated. And we also got the opportunity to go to the National Institutes of Health. Uh, I grew up in South Florida. I'd never been to NIH. I had no idea what that was. But when I was there, I got to meet with Seymour Kaufman. And Seymour Kaufman um, at the intramural program has had for decades been studying phenylketonuria, um, very rare uh, subtypes in some cases of phenylketonuria, but was um, very, very heavily involved for decades. Um, after, uh, after I won the Westinghouse Science Talent Search, I went on to college and was thinking that I might want to be long-term, I was a biochemistry major, and thought that I might want to continue to be involved in biochemical research and thought, well, I'd be interested to know how that might also affect people, um, you know, not just studying reactions in test tubes, but understanding how that impacted people. So I went back to Dr. Kaufman again at NIH and said, would you mind if I come and spend some time with you? And so that started uh, really a much longer relationship uh, at the National Institutes of Health, spending some time at the bench, also being able to meet patients with these uh, unusual forms of phenylketonuria with tetrahydrobiopter and synthase deficiencies and problems with BH4 recycling um, and be able to get to know and understand not just the biochemistry, but start to learn about the genetics and more importantly, start to learn about the people. And that really became for me, the beginning of my understanding that I wanted to dedicate my life to being a physician scientist, to really putting together, as I said, some of the basic science and the fundamentals of that with the people behind that and being able to have an impact on their lives. And so just like newborn screening started with PKU, um, my involvement with newborn screening started with PKU as well. Dr. Chung, that's amazing. So for three decades, you've been involved in newborn screening research. We're so excited to have you on our podcast today. So Dr. Chung, over the years, your work has led to groundbreaking publications describing the genetic basis for both rare and common genetic disease. And your efforts have not only described the basis for disease, but also the development of precision therapies based on genetic findings in individuals. You're now leading an exciting new effort called the Guardian Study. Please tell our audience how your years of research led you to conceive of and undertake this important effort. So Amy, it's definitely been a learning experience for me over time. Um, the In terms of newborn screening pilots, although I've been involved in newborn screening or conditions in newborn screening, the new, first newborn screening pilot I studied started rather was in 2016 for spinal muscular atrophy. I'd been working for the decade before that on developing therapies for spinal muscular atrophy. And it was an interesting sort of convergence, both of what I think of as early diagnostics yoked with therapeutics. And what I mean by that is that 
um, at that time in 2016, so timestamp that, we had our first clinical trials for SMA, what used to be, uh, past tense used to be the most common genetic cause of death for children less than two years of age. But we knew the natural history and we knew about motor neuron loss with that with that disease. And the concern that I had was that that was a one-way street. Once you lost those cells, we couldn't get them back. So you, you had to think about this actually being preemptive uh, in terms of the clinical trials and the therapies, the ASOs we had at the time. And so uh, this was based on Kathy Swoboda's earlier work. I want to give Kathy credit for that with thinking about um, if a newborn screening pilot study could be done for SMA. And because of the genetics of that, that is that most individuals have the same mutation. I, there was a way to be able to do it uh, from newborn screen dried blood spots and to be able to do it at high throughput and very cost effectively. And so that, that was the first of the studies that we did in New York uh, in collaboration with Michelle Kajana and Denise Kay at the New York State Department of Health. Um, in my opinion, that uh, first pilot, uh, we got to a certain extent lucky and in a certain extent we were smart about timing it just perfectly, um, was actually um, just well-timed in terms of uh, the field was ripe to be able to do this. We were very successful in demonstrating the technical ability to do it. The high uptake from families, uh, greater than 93% of families wanted to do this. And then, as I said, um, I still get goosebumps when I look at the first baby that we identified from that and the fact that we really did save her life. She would have uh, died with type 1 SMA had she not got been diagnosed and gotten into those trials. And that really uh, became, I think, um, a, a pivotal time for that one condition. SMA is now on the recommended universal screening panel. It is almost implemented across all 50 states. Uh, and we now have three FDA approved medications for that. So really transformational in terms of that condition. Um, with that, and, and really glad to be able to partner with Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, with you, Amy, and with others, as we did Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy as the next uh, pilot study in New York. Um, I won't go into all the details, but that's wrapped up and been successful as well with CPK as a screen. But as I went through both of those processes, even though they were incredibly successful, it was a lot of hard work. Um, and to think about doing these one by one, um, I've got a lot of gray hairs, and, and I just thought to myself, we're not going to get all of these done by the time I finish my career. How do we speed these things up? And so that got me to the idea that we needed, just like when tandem mass spectrometry to me was transformational for newborn screening for inborn errors of metabolism, we needed now a different transformational platform that we could use. Um, and that in this era is, is sequencing, DNA sequencing. And so Guardian is really uh, the idea that, again, in the spirit of health equity and being able to leave no baby behind, we want to make sure that we can get early diagnosis for conditions that matter. And I, I want to underscore that. We really, uh, in we'll get into it a little bit later, but in conversations with families about what they would like to see from this, um, wanted to see that there were things we could be certain of. There, were, there was news we could use. There were things that we could do about this and we could do it accurately. And that if we did that based on now uh, those criteria and technically what we could get from genomic screening from a newborn screen blood spot, there were literally hundreds of conditions that would fit that bill. And so this would then allow us to move the field forward really very rapidly and, and give us flexibility to continue adding additional conditions. So we're in the midst of it now. I won't say we've got it all figured out, um, but so far so good.
That's really amazing. Um, you know, we've worked for a long time with Dr. Swoboda and she's taught us so much at ACMG and with our MBS TRN effort. And now we get to ride along with you and learn along with you. Um, and so part of that, Dr. Chung, we're really excited that you're the chair of our steering committee and that you presented as part of our MBS research summit last year. Um, so in 2020, I guess a few years ago, time flies, you presented on genomic causes of broken hearts. Can you describe your goals with this effort and how this could facilitate early treatment and improve health outcomes for infants with congenital heart disease? Sure. So Amy, this is a little bit more complicated and in, in when one thinks of this in newborn screening, but I'll just remind some of the listeners that we use, I call it multimodal, but we use different methods of diagnosing babies as part of newborn screening. It's not all just that dried blood spot. And just as a reminder, one really important thing that we do is checking for cyanotic congenital heart disease or critical heart disease where the blood does not get oxygenated. And we need to find that out right away because there can be life-saving surgeries that we can give those babies, but we need to recognize it and we need to do that. Again, I'm gonna come back to the health equity. We need to make sure that this can be done in an equitable way for all babies. And so that, uh, that um, pulse oximetry is a relatively low-tech consistent way of doing that. Now that's great for identifying the babies that need surgery or need some other care. And so that fault solves the immediate issue. But one of the things I've also learned over my career, and I've been studying the genetic basis for congenital heart disease for almost two decades now, is that even babies that have the same, I'll call it hole in the heart or plumbing issues, um, but the same anatomy of their heart with congenital heart disease, they may have very, very different causes and they may have very different syndromes or conditions that are associated with it. And so that even though our fantastic surgeons may repair the hole in the heart or may do incredibly complicated surgery to fix things, after that point, things may diverge quite, quite a bit. There may be other associated, whether it's kidney disease, whether it's seizures, whether it's problems with thyroid conditions, but any numerable other things that can be associated. And you're flying blind if all you know is the cardiac anatomy. And again, in the spirit of giving every baby the same chance to a healthy life, we want to be able to prevent problems. And so the congenital heart disease is the first tip off that something else might be going on. So with this, and again, you know, there have been many giants uh, thinking about this as well. The question is, how do we get to the diagnosis expeditiously, efficiently, equitably? And so again, I know I sound like a broken record, uh, but we've been thinking about how can genetics help give an additional layer of information, additional specificity, additional precision in terms of managing those children with congenital heart disease. Um, just to give you a sense, this is pretty common. Congenital heart disease we see in about 1% of babies born. So this is not in and of itself a rare disease. But when you think about the genetic, just the genetic causes alone of congenital heart disease, we know there are probably at least 400 different genes that are involved. So you can see and, and start to map out in your head, there can be many, many different conditions associated with these, each one of which might have great specificity in terms of what's associated. So as we do this, I, I think of being uh, forewarned, we can be prepared 
prepared uh, and information is knowledge, I think, both to parents as well as to us as providers. If we know there might be a problem, we can look for it, we can nip it in the bud, we can prevent it, we can treat it. Um, and I do think that in terms of for families, this sense of being able to have a roadmap to follow gives them a real sense of empowerment um, for most of them, less anxiety, knowing what they need to do, feeling like they've got their marching orders. And I can tell you for sure, being a doctor on the doctor's side, um, feeling like we're in control and we're never completely in control, truth be told, but feeling like we have a greater sense of what we need to do and being able to do those things, I think helps us all to be able to improve outcomes. Um, I think we still need to generate the data a la what we're here about in NBSTRN. We need to continue to develop the evidence-based and the data to be able to support both the claims and the recommendations we're going to make long-term in terms of policies. Um, but in doing this, this is part of what we want to do for the quote-unquote broken hearts or congenital heart disease. Your research team collaborated with the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, MBS TRAN, and many others in a two-year pilot of newborn screening for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Could you share with our listeners what you and the consortium learned from this pilot and how this might inform future efforts? Sure. This was uh, really a fantastic partnership. Um, again, starting with Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, many, many people, uh, both in terms of the New York State Department of Health, those of us that were at clinical sites doing this. Um, and the idea behind this was that we started out with a uh, within that newborn screen blood spot um, with the creatine kinase. So being able to look and see, uh, just as a reminder, with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, as the those muscle cells break down and break open, we can see the creatine kinase coming from the muscle itself that is then seen in the blood and is essentially a biomarker of dysfunction of the muscle or, or muscle cell breakdown. Now, it's not specific to DMD, and that's kind of the, uh, you know, the issue that we needed to ferret out and be able to understand. And as with other things that we do with that are um, quantitative in newborn screening, there's a continuum in terms of what the levels of this CK, um, uh, specifically this fraction that comes from the muscle is. And so there was a lot of learning to do. Um, I'll remind people that Duchenne muscular dystrophy is an X linked disorder. And so in terms of those individuals affected, we were expecting them mostly to be male, um, just clinically, that's what we see. And so there was a lot of learning to do in terms of what were the normal levels? What would they be, for instance, by gestational age? What would they be if a baby had a rough delivery, as an example? You can imagine there might be other reasons. There could be muscle breakdown that might cause some of this uh, creatine kinase to float off into the blood. Um, and as well, there might be other forms of muscular dystrophy besides Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So we had an awful lot of learning to do to understand what would the thresholds be that we would use for the cutoff. Um, might there be other conditions that we would pick up? Would we ever pick up females, uh, for instance, as we were doing this? Um, and importantly, you know, as we picked up the males, what would the impact be? Um, would we be able to help those young boys be able to either recognize early the supports that they might need? Would they uh, start 
medication like steroids at some point um, to be able to support the muscle. In some cases, there are molecular therapies for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Might that be helpful for any of them? So all of this uh, you know, was intended to be what we would learn. Now, if you timestamp this, um, this was a very challenging time. And I won't go COVID, COVID, COVID all over you, but um, just to say that in the midst of this, we did have this outbreak, this pandemic. And I am so incredibly proud of the team because we were so passionate about continuing on. Um, there were very few days when we did not continue on with this pilot study, even despite, and remember, we're in New York City. We were the epicenter at the very beginning of this in March 2020. There were very few days when we actually did not continue recruiting and continue on with running the laboratory and doing the follow-up for this. It would taught us a very important lesson though, um, that we actually converted this study from being in person with recruitment to being able to learn how to do things remotely, being able to do things in a hybrid mode. And I have to say that that sort of forced learning in this has taught us a lot about how we can do things in a different way. And, and I won't go through all the details we've published on this as a group, um, but the ability to do that and to learn different ways of doing things and how we could make it easier for families and how we could coordinate efforts um, and not have to do them in the fixed way that we'd always done them uh, was eye-opening for us. And we continue to use not just in our newborn screening pilots, but in other research studies as well with participants. So it, it, all in all, uh, what I can say at the end of this, and, and this is actually just recently accepted for publication, so you'll be able to read the full story yourself, um, is that this is very successful. We can do exactly what we expected. We see the frequency of disease that we expected. So we don't think we're, we're missing any of the baby boys born with this. And we definitely learned in the process the way to streamline going from a screen positive to a definitive diagnosis and how to do that most efficiently uh, in terms of both uh, sort of pain on the families and being able to do this uh, from dried blood spots uh, so that we don't have to recall the families and put them through extra pokes. Um, so all of this, um, just a real credit to the many, many people on the team that, that accomplished this. What a fascinating story. And I know um, our team at MBS TRM was really excited to be part of this. We definitely learned a lot about sharing data. Um, one thing that was included in this is, you know, parent surveys and your team that really conducted those, you know, reminded us about the important role that parents play in the expansion of newborn screening. And so with thinking about parents, um, in 2019, our bioethics and legal work group led a published publication that recommended how to conduct pilot studies and how to include um, the ethical, legal, and social considerations, and talked a little bit about how to enroll diverse participants. So informed by the work of our bioethics and legal work group, your team recently examined parental views about expansion of newborn screening and the use of genomics. Could you tell our audience a little bit about this effort and what you think of the role in parental choice in the expansion of newborn screening? 
So Amy, I, I really want to underscore the uh, manuscript and the that the NBSTRN put out because that was really important for us and I think is a large deserves a lot of credit for why Guardian is now uh, as much as we can complain it, uh, claim success I think is in large part to the, your guidance that you gave us. Um, so we took this very seriously and Guardian before we launched we actually had about three and a half years that we were in the planning stages so we didn't go into Guardian lightly, and we started with our parents. Um, we actually started the whole, I call it a, a listening tour, uh, but we took the parents from our SMA pilot study. Um, they had agreed to be recontacted for future pilot studies, and we sat down with them and started asking them, let's start from the very beginning. If you could design a newborn screen, what would you want it to be? What, what are the principles? What are the guidelines you would want? And again, to the point of equity and inclusivity, um, how would you ensure this? And so we went through this actually many, many times. This wasn't just a one-time meeting. Uh, we went through this with a stakeholder group of some parents that were, um, you know, from different sort of uh, demographics, some that were more sophisticated about these things, some that were more like an average uh, sort of new parent population. Um, and as we went through this over a three and a half year period, we ultimately got to some of the following guiding principles. Um, number one, um, don't, you know, don't harm us, don't harm my baby. So as we're doing this, it, it sort of came to this idea of no extra pokes, um, minimal extra time burden in terms of doing this and give us news we can use. Um, don't leave us in, in confusion. We don't like, I call it genetic purgatory. Uh, so don't live it, leave us in a place where we're uncertain and causing additional anxiety. As you think about how to do this, try and give us certainty and do it as early in the process as you can. So if you need to do some checks and balances or, or confirmations or things like that, as much as you can do behind the scenes before you even call us, for instance, is helpful. Um, well, one of the things that you alluded to and, and we published on was um, this idea, though, of what parents wanted on the screen. And this was really important to me and really opened my eyes in that um, when you go back to the WHO criteria in terms of what is included within newborn screen, I will say our parents took some had some different opinions. And, and so when we think about classical things like PKU that should be on newborn screening that fulfill all of those criteria in terms of, um, you know, both the testing itself and the especially the treatability and the efficacy of treatability, that's where our parents differed. Um, in terms of treatability, they had a slightly different definition, which is that if they could do something that would improve the outcome, and, and it's hard to quantify this, but they, they said a significant improvement in outcome. It doesn't have to be a cure with a capital C, but it can be something to improve the care. And in, in particular, there were families that were part of this who had children who had one or another different conditions, didn't have to be genetic conditions in newborn screening. But they explained to us over and again, the frustration that they had with the healthcare system and sort of being guided through it or getting lost in the system and the delays to diagnosis. And this could have been anything from asthma to um, other, you know, problems that they were having that, again, were not uh, newborn screening types of conditions. But when it came to the issues of equity and being able to allow, especially those who had greater difficulty navigating our healthcare system, they said, make it easy. You know, the more that you can do in terms of getting us to a diagnosis, avoiding that diagnostic odyssey, 
empowering families to be able to be effective, making it, you know, so that they could do this um, and have that as, as soon as possible after the diagnosis is given an action plan, clear instructions, um, that would be a good thing. And so we followed those principles, both in terms of what to include within Guardian, how to educate them. We had families go with us uh, literally dozens of times with all of our educational materials, our videos, our websites, what words to use, our consent forms. Um, but we really literally had family members as part of uh, paid members, actually, of our research team to make sure that every single meeting we had, we had their input. And I think that's been a large part of the success to the whole program is that um, they really have been equal members of the team and uh, we could not do it without them. We couldn't do anything we do within Guardian and our newborn screening pilots without them now. So Dr. Chan, thank you so much for sharing your publication on the role of the parental choice and expansion of newborn screening. You're also involved in training the next generation of board certified clinical and molecular geneticists. What do you tell them about newborn screening research? Sure. So um, I have the real honor of being able to work with incredibly talented uh, young trainees, both physicians um, who are clinical geneticists, as well as our laboratory fellows who are molecular uh, cytogenomicists, um, as we call them these days. Um, we have both of them in terms of meetings all the time. It, they're very helpful in terms of helping us think through as I said, everything from what genes should be on the list, um, the molecular cytogenomicist help us think about technical details when we have pseudogenes or difficult to detect variants um, where we might have deletions and, and what's our sensitivity or what do we need to do in terms of uh, either um, sort of tweaking our pipeline to make sure that we don't overlook something that might be a small deletion yet a recurrent mutation that's incredibly important to pick up, uh, phasing of variants to tell whether or not some things for recessive disorders are actually biallelic or two variants that are in cis, um, all sorts of technical details. And they're, uh, as I said, they um, are very dedicated, I guess is the word that I'm going to use. They, they really, really take this seriously. And it's a great opportunity for them because to be totally honest, when we're at the cutting edge, when we're at the, the frontier of this, none of us know exactly how this is gonna work. And so they're right there at that edge, um, pushing us forward and, and asking key questions to make sure that we're doing things right and we're doing things ethically, efficiently, uh, cost-effectively, but, but, but that we're doing them right. For the clinicians, it's a great opportunity, again, as we're at that edge about thinking about how do you deliver information back to parents. And so our clinicians especially are with us as we're disclosing results, as we're bringing families back for that first visit after disclosure. Then there's a real art to be able to have parents uh, deliver the message with the level of concern that we have to be clear and transparent in that information um, and not to get them overly anxious, as an example, if we think something's a false positive, and to also get them to take something seriously if we think it's a true positive. And so it's conveying that message in the right tone, with the right words, with the right follow-up after that initial visit. Um, and as we do this, uh, as I said, with the understanding that um, that first visit can be what I call shock and awe. That is that getting a huge amount of information and information overload can be overwhelming, especially for parents who are sleep deprived. It may be their first child. They may have painful breasts with their, uh, you know, being new to breastfeeding. They're all may have 
um, hormones that are raging or postpartum depression, but just all sorts of things that that exact time in life for parents can be complicated even without any of these newborn screening results. So we try and take that and um, tailor our care of the parents and the child in terms of follow-up, checking back in with them, providing written information, uh, providing what we've developed or action sheets uh, similar to what ACMG has developed for regular newborn screening, but we've done that for the new conditions in Guardian, um, as well as having a whole team. And I want to emphasize, even though uh, we're emphasizing the fellows here, um, they're learning from our social workers, our clinical care coordinators, our genetic counselors, our attending physicians, our molecular laboratorians. Uh, we really work together as a team, and so our fellows have the opportunity to learn as those skills from all those different team members and, and how we do work together as a team. So with this, um, we are uh, learning on the fly. I won't say we figured everything out, but it's a, a real honor to learn with them and to teach them you know, what little we know as we're going along this road. Thank you, Dr. Chung, and we look forward to interacting with your fellows and your trainees in the future, I'm sure they'll be continue to play an important role in advancing newborn screening research. And as I mentioned earlier, we're so grateful for you serving as co-chair of the MBSTRN steering committee. And you recently joined us last year. So can you tell our audience what you're most excited about and share a little bit of your thoughts on the role that MBSTRN can play to help advance your efforts as well as advance newborn screening research for everyone? So the NBSTRN is so critical to provide the necessary infrastructure as we continue to iteratively improve newborn screening in the United States. And although NBSTRN is, is focused in the United States, I'll also give a nod to their other groups around the world, obviously, that are doing uh, similar things as well. Um, the point in terms of the infrastructure is that you know, we're already screening for dozens of conditions within newborn screening, um, but there are still ways that we can optimize things. So as I was saying before, everything from the thresholds we use as we add new conditions, um, as we rely in some cases on molecular genetic interpretation, uh, NBSTRN provides critical infrastructure to know when we screen someone positive at the end of the day, was that a false positive, a false, uh, it's rare, but you know, could we have a false negative and allows us to iteratively improve our thresholds and our interpretation of the data. Um, and also, you know, one of the things we always say with newborn screening is that we get a different um, sampling, we have a different ascertainment when we screen from newborn screening. It gives us the true and to my knowledge, only real population uh, incidents or prevalence data and knowing the full spectrum of the conditions um, in an unbiased way. And that uh, I, I appreciated first with spinal muscular atrophy, as I was saying, to really be able to get that and to understand the real true birth incidence of, of SMA, to understand the different types of SMA that we were seeing the SMN2 copy number, and ultimately, and this is critical, is to look at outcomes. And the reason I mention this is SMA is still evolving. I still don't feel like even though we have standard of care documents, as I said, we now have three different treatments for SMA, but exactly, you know, is gene therapy a one and done truly curative treatment? I don't think we know that in many cases, um, and we still need to make improvements in terms of that. Um, we've got, you know, ASOs as well. Um, are there 
circumstances in which one should use the combination of the two. Um, we don't know, but we've sure better learn quickly because uh, there are kiddos that are depending on us. And so NBSTRN gives us that infrastructure to be able to do that. And, and the beauty of it is it's not just one condition, it's really being able to do it across many conditions uh, and to do it consistently with high fidelity and to be able to ensure that we're learning together as we go forward. That becomes really critical to me in terms of as we do think about new technologies, new enabling platforms to do not just one condition at a time that we add to newborn screening, um, but dozens of them potentially or hundreds even, um, we need to be able to use the data to guide us because we are, the, you know, this really is a, a new frontier that we're entering and we need to be able to use data, use evidence, use science to guide us in terms of making the right decisions. I will say, because we've done this, you know, for those of you who are younger, you might take for granted that what we currently do is the way we've always done it. And I'll say, living through this a couple decades, we have learned on the fly and we will, we, uh, we need to acknowledge that we won't do this perfectly as we come out the gate, but we, we, we need to be dedicated to doing it better. And I think that's, that's what NBSTRN provides us with is that ability to continuously improve as we're doing this, a continuous quality improvement initiative. In addition to funding MBSGRN, NICHD supports a variety of efforts to advance newborn screening research. CDC and HRSA also fund important efforts to advance and support newborn screening through work with state newborn screening programs, policymakers, parents, and advocates. Please share your vision of how these key federal partners could work together to accelerate the translation of research findings into public health and clinical care. So obviously, we're trying to work together to swim in the same direction and to be able to make sure that we're synergizing. Um, the federal government, I will admit, I still haven't completely figured out what all the levers are that can be pulled um, to be able to enable us all to do our very best. Um, but I do believe in newborn screening. There are many stakeholders, and each of them have a role to play in this. Um, as I said, we do try and coordinate. We try and make sure that we're um, not duplicating efforts as we're going forward, that we do uh, try and use data um, for everyone to be able to protect patient or, or newborn privacy. So I want to be clear that as we do things, for instance, with this, we very much follow uh, the highest standards in terms of research, research protections, privacy of information. Um, and I know we're all dedicated to do the same thing and we're doing it to make sure that the next generation is going to do even better. Um, as we do this, I do think the CDC has played critical roles, for instance, in terms of technically being able to have new technologies that can be rapidly disseminated. As, as you'll recall, this has to be disseminated across many different states or collectives of states. Um, and so there are technical standards that need to be adhered to. Um, there are things that we do in terms of being able to make sure from policy points of view, uh, many times, not just at the federal level, but also at the state level about how this is funded, uh, how newborn screen programs at the state level have sufficient staff expertise and resources, equipment and space to be able to accomplish all of this. And it's non-trivial. Um, but I will say that uh, an ounce of prevention uh, is really, really critical. And that's what newborn screening allows us to do is to really, at the end of the day, be extremely cost effective uh, by being able to 
to prevent the problems. And, and this gets into the issues in terms of as we think about public health and policy, how does NBSTRN help us gather the data to demonstrate when it comes to policymakers that what I just claimed is true. That is that uh, it is cost effective, that prevention allows for the best outcome for, for the next generation of children. Um, so all of this, uh, we're working together and it's all within the setting of competing dollars um, that are, you know, there, there are always health crises, there are COVID crises, there are a lot of things going on. And so as we're doing it, we need to be able to put forth cogent arguments and justifications uh, to support our, what we're, our premise that what we're advocating for in newborns, in fact, is so important. Thank you, Dr. Chung, for that, for sharing your vision on how our funders can work together to advance newborn screening. And so we're so excited to have you on our podcast today. And we always end our podcast recordings with our signature question. So Dr. Chung, what does newborn screening research mean to you? So fundamentally, I am a researcher, and I'm a researcher and a doctor, though. Um, and the the reason I put that together is, you know, the newborn screening research to me is very pragmatic. It's very goal oriented, and it clearly has the goal of improving the health and the lives of children and their family and the and families. Um, and for this. Um, Newborns are some of our most vulnerable people in society, and as a mother myself, I really feel this, um, I guess it's a maternal instinct, really, to be able to take care of them and to make sure that they are going to grow up to be healthy and happy and that their families will be able to, in the same way, uh, love and support them for for decades to come. So as we do this, um, the research part to me means that we always strive to be better. We always strive to make improvements, to be able to make sure the next generation is going to do even better than the last. And I am very, very confident that this era that we're entering really is going to be that for newborn screening. It's really exciting. There are incredible opportunities that we have, incredible responsibilities that we have. Um, but those of us doing newborn screen research take that very seriously. And uh, uh, we really hope that we're going to be able to do that for the next generation of babies. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together let's, let's increase, increase the, the impact, impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories. stories.